to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians 8. If you stand, I'll be reading verses 1 through 13. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 13. And really, this morning, we'll just be focusing on one of those verses, verse 6, as we consider the nature of how we know the true God that we might be delivered from idolatry. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there are no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple... Will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge he was weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Please be seated. Now, if you come over to my house and sit on my living room couch, it won't be long before you notice across the room a small green alien creature with huge, extremely cute eyes staring at you from the bookshelf. Yes, I cannot tell a lie, I have a baby Yoda resident in my home. And yes, as many of you already know, and some of you could now guess, my family and I are qualified fans of the cultural phenomenon that is known as Star Wars. Now, I'm willing to bet that most of you were lost when I said baby Yoda, and that's a good thing. But most of you probably, maybe all of you, were aware that Star Wars means, at the very least, spaceships, laser guns, lightsabers, that kind of thing. And in that sense, what's not to like? You've got underdog good guys with nothing going for them but charm, camaraderie, cool technology, and a hatred of evil. They take down the bad guys who harm, oppress, and destroy all that is right and good. However, you may have noticed that I said we are qualified fans of Star Wars because We will not be taken in by the world view, what we might call the theology of Star Wars. But of course, this is true of any secular entertainment. Whether you are watching a Hallmark film, a Disney princess movie, or a History Channel documentary, the underlying assumptions and beliefs about life and how to live it are all wrong. All of them. Not just Star Wars that has evil theology. It is everything that doesn't reflect the true nature of God through Christ. All those are wrong theologies. As much as you may love them or cry at them or be intrigued by them, the fundamental theology and philosophy behind that entertainment is wrong. Now, in the case of Star Wars, its creator, George Lucas, very obviously and purposely took all the major world religions, he mashed them together, threw them into a movie, and called it the Force. You know, the tree, the rock. Now, the force is this force that holds all things together. And of course, this is a huge problem because the being who actually holds the universe together is the creator God of the Bible, and little bits of him are not found in all the parts of his creation. Additionally, he is not the sum total of his creation, as though the cosmos is all that there is or all that there ever will be. Now, famously, 
A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And he was right. Unfortunately, too many Christians who might despise Star Wars and mock the Force have views of God that are just as fuzzy and in some cases just as wrong-headed. We live in a Christian culture within the evangelical church that has stopped thinking carefully and biblically about God as though this were unimportant. We don't need theology. We don't need to know about God. We're all going to love Jesus. Yeah, Jesus who? Jesus the Lord? Jesus the Lord Jesus Christ? the eternally generated Son who comes from the Father as part of the Trinity? Who are we talking about? And that's what Paul is dealing with here as he digs them into the reality of who God is, who Jesus is, in contrast to the gods of this world. All this is carefully put together by the Apostle Paul. He's dealing with idolatry. And we do, when we do not think carefully about God, when we let our society dictate to us how we will think about God, we suddenly open, we subtly open ourselves up to the possibility of worshiping an idol or idols even in the name of the true God, because that's what was going on at Corinth. They believed in God. They had professed Christ, and many of them, probably most of them, were actually believers. And yet, in that, their fuzzy thinking about who God was, was allowing idols to creep back into their lives, and they were even, in thinking rightly, truthfully about God, actually enacting the worship of God in a way that was idolatrous. This can happen to us if we don't carefully think about God and how that applies to our actions. What we'll see then this morning is that the Bible alone reveals the true nature of God. And Christians are to set aside all idols and exclusively worship and serve the triune God as revealed in God the Father and Jesus Christ the Lord by the power of God the Holy Spirit. The Bible alone reveals the true nature of God. Christians are to set aside all idols and exclusively worship and serve the triune God as revealed in God the Father and Jesus Christ the Lord by the power of God the Holy Spirit. For us, there is one God and one Lord, and we worship Him alone. Now, in these three chapters, right, really a complex argument about the nature of idolatry, and we talked a little bit about the fact that everything in the ancient world was linked to a visible idol. For us, everything in the modern world is linked to an idol, it's just not as visible. Right? We've removed the middleman, as we said, and so we surveyed the idolatry in Corinth, the idea that every part of society, political, military, and, and social, family, everything was based around this worship of other gods. And so you had to enter into that worship really to do pretty much anything in the culture. Well, again, that's much true for us, but the problem is we have a harder time recognizing it because we don't sit down and you know, eat meat with little Buddhas all around or some other kind of idol. Yet, our idolatry, when we engage in it, is just as odious to our holy God. So we're going to have to work hard to take the reality of what was going on in Corinth and then transfer it Right, into our culture. Not so much the idolatry, that's, you know, we are idolaters, but exactly what that looks like. And I'm not yet doing that, right? I've not yet made some specific application, right? This is what specifically our cultural idolatry looks like, except just to kind of lay bare the nature of our idolatry, the fact that we have other things that we worship. So we'll work our way towards that, but we're still just at the basic stages of understanding who God is, how we use the knowledge of God. That's how Paul is building all of this. And last week we talked about fleeing idolatry, and that that requires the proper use of knowledge about God. Look in our text, chapter 8, verse 1. It says, concerning things sacrificed to idols, he's, this is the topic he's choosing on the basis of their questions and their comments about it. 
He says, we know that we all have knowledge. As we said last week, they knew the truth about God. Paul had taught them that. They had that in the Old Testament. But he says, right, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he's not yet known as he ought to know. There's a way to use knowledge. True believers use the knowledge they have about God in ways that edify others, and that's when they combine knowledge with love. True knowledge has to have love in it or it's not true knowledge. It's just pure knowledge, just pure facts. Biblical knowledge always brings with it the idea of love. That is, you have a delight in God, you long to have your character conform to His image, and your love to others means you long to see them conform to the image of Christ. That's your love for them. Relationally, you engage with them, not simply so that you can have you know, a warm relationship together, but so that they can take on the character of Christ that you are taking on because God is supreme to you. See, this love back to God drives your love towards other people and then drives the way you use knowledge so that it doesn't harm others or draw them into idolatry, which was happening at Corinth. They were wrongly using their knowledge about God and harming other believers really drawing them into sin and into the worship of other gods, even though they were Christians. We said that knowledge is available to all believers, but that knowledge used wrongly puffs up. Knowledge combined with love edifies, and knowledge exercised in ignorance is deceitful. Our understanding of knowledge is found, it says, with those who love God, verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he's known by him. If, if we're trying to espouse knowledge about God and we don't love him, not delighted in him, taking on his character, then our knowledge that, that we use is just harming people. It's like bashing them over the head with truth and not loving God. And that love to God, remember, is the demonstration of the fact that he knows us. We only love because he first loved us. If you love God, if somebody goes, look, look what I've done, that's a reflection of his knowledge of you, that he knew you first and he then initiated a relationship with you. And then the last part of last week's lesson was Fleeing idolatry requires the proper content of knowledge about God. That was verse 4, where he says, We know there's no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. This is the fundamental statement of Christianity. There is no God but one. We draw that out of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.4, but we bring it into the New. Paul brings it into the New Testament right here. There's no God but one. But they were misusing that knowledge. There's only one God, so who cares about idols? There's no real idols. There aren't aren't any real other gods, so we can do what we want. That idolatry doesn't have an impact. Well, Paul says it does. Because even as there are, verse 5, there are many so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. You see, the false worship, even of those deities which aren't real, is enslaving and will take you to eternal hell. Underneath that, we know from chapter 10, are Satan and his demons who seek to hold humanity locked into this false worship of these lords and gods that they willingly place over themselves, as it were. It is their desire to do so. They're constrained. Right, We're dead in trespasses and sins. We can do no less than worship false gods, but it is what we want to do. All humanity, apart from the knowledge of the one true God, loves to worship idols. They're not dragged kicking and screaming to the worship of idols. That's what they do. He says, there's no such thing as an idol, but these so-called gods and lords are dominating your life, and you must not enter into behavior which would somehow subtly affirm the worship of or the subjection of your life in any way, even to those things which are not actually God. So now we will discuss just verse 6. He's been working his way here before he's going to move into some direct discussions of how we use knowledge, right? He's really beginning with the very basics, which is why I've taken time to belabor that. Because so often we don't do what Paul does here. He was talking about what knowledge is, how we use knowledge, and who God actually is. 
Because you can't avoid idolatry if you have a wrong concept of God. And too often, we're not taught the nature of who God is. So really, we'll just take Paul's two statements in verse 6 to be our two main points. There's one God, the Father, and there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's begin with one God, the Father. He says in verse 6, yet for us, strong contrast. Contrast to what? Contrast to those whose lives are dominated by these false gods, these false deities. For us, he says, there is but one God. And he's not saying, look, this is our belief, right? And this is just, you know, that's, that's what you believe. So as we believe as Christians, we choose this belief and you can choose who you want to believe. No, he's already said this. There aren't any other gods. When he's saying for us, he's not just simply saying we invented this. He's saying believers are the only ones who have a knowledge of the true God. See, your faith does not create God. You have faith in the God who already exists, the one true God. So all these false gods and false lords are not created by someone really believing strongly in them. See, this is, the, this is the unbelievable foolishness, insanity of the world that they believe that you can bring things into existence by your faith. And if I, just, if I believe in that, it's true. And our, 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 this generation has taken this to the extreme, has it not? Anything I believe can come into being. I can decide. I can believe who I am. I can believe things about my gender. I can believe things about things that happen in the world. And I will make that happen. No, you won't. Your faith creates no truth. You are to have faith in what is true. And that's what he says for us, for true believers, the ones who know. Why? Because of what God has done in our hearts, there is but one God. And so, number one, God is unique. He just said that in verse 4, right, that there is no God but one, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Right? Behold, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. But this is speaking of God's uniqueness first and foremost, and then it will move its way towards an understanding of the Trinity here in our passage. But God is unique, the one actual deity, the one creator God. And this word, God, theos, I mean, it's just a general Greek word for God. And yet it takes its content, its form from what? The scriptures. You don't build the content of God out of Allah, the God of Islam, or some other God. It's a general word, sure, but it's defined by the Bible. For us Christians, for those who know God because of the truth of scripture, this is the one true God, the one defined in the Scriptures. That's a vital point. You may not suck your information about God off the Internet or some other religion or some book that you read about God. Now, if it properly represents God, it's great to read good books that will take Scripture and properly interpret it for you. But do not take someone else's view of God and import that into yours. You have to understand the Scriptures properly. That's why we teach this. Plus, look, I taught you about God. There's only one. He is unique. You're right. There are no other deities because there are no other creator gods because there's only one God portrayed in Scripture. That's it. Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord, and there is none other. Besides me, there is no God. I mean, it's, it's a truism. Right? I'm the Lord, there's none other. Therefore, besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. How many times is he going to say that? Over and over, because we don't get it. You go, oh yeah, we got it, Chris. Well, we get it. you don't have to teach us this again. Are your lives reflecting this? Are you actually reflecting the fact that there is only one God? That everything about you is to be consumed into that one God? That's what it says here. From him are all things, and we exist for him. See, people say, well, you're getting too riled up about this. I mean, come on Sunday morning, you spend all this time, and, you know, you're supposed to spend all time through the week. 
you know, learning about God and having your life dominated by God. No, you need to be dominated by you. That is the worst possible way of thinking. You are to be dominated by the creator God because he is the one who spoke you into existence and there's no other one to be dominated by. Those are the sublords, little gods, other stuff that you find your fullness of satisfaction in. It's got to go. God is unique. He says it over and over. One God, the God of the Bible, no other God exists, and you must know Him through the principles of Scripture. It's why we study Him over and over. An hour on Sunday morning, I tell you, it's not enough. Your hour on Wednesday night, it's not enough. Your 15 minutes uh, a day, if you get that during the week, it's not enough. This is the one Creator God. Every other thing in the world is telling you wrong things about God. Every show that you watch, every book that you read, every person you come into contact with has wrong views about God that they're trying to foist on you. You don't study him enough. We need to know the one true God. Away with us, or we know enough, and we got that, and we, we can live our lives. The, the reflection of our lives does not indicate that we know the one true God as we need to. And that's why Paul goes back after this. There's one God. Are you not getting that, Corinthians? And I would say the same for us. He is unique. He's also the father. I'm sorry, ladies, because on Mother's Day, I think I was talking about something completely other than Mother's Day because it wasn't in the text. On Father's Day, we got fathers. You're like, oh, sure. All right. You may, no, remember, we're just, it's just the next verse. All right. God, the father. Now, easily or immediately, we jump to God as relational father, and we should. The one who adopts us into his family one with whom we have personal relationship, and as we as fathers seek to emulate that relationship. But that's not the first meaning of God in Scripture when it talks about father. And, when, and, and it's not even the primary meaning that's being spoken of here. God the Father, he says, well, how's that defined? The one from whom all things are and the one for whom all things exist. When we speak of father here first, we're speaking of the one from whom all things originate. The one from whom all things are generated. He is the Father. And this is true even within the Trinity. We're not going to dig, you know, we're not going to try to dig ourselves a hole of the Trinity here working our way all the way through this. But even the idea of something like the eternal generation of the Son, just simply this, the Son is always called the Son. Why? Because he's always from the Father. Does that mean he's less than the Father? Absolutely not. That's what we will see. But the Scripture teaches this. Father is a title for God. It has to do relationally, yes, with this relationship with the Son, but also with the fact that the Son originates, as it were, or is, is flows from, generated from the Father, not created, right, but comes from eternally. So God is Father and that He originates all things. We see that even in Trinitarian work, even in creation, which we'll see in our passage. It is the Father who originates. He plans. It is the Son who accomplishes the work necessary for the plan to take place. It's the Spirit of God who finishes the work, who finalizes it. They all work together, equally and fully God, existing for all of eternity, together in relationship. Father, always the Father. The Son, always the Son. The Spirit, always the Spirit. These things have always been true, and God is the originator. Now, that's important because that builds our understanding of the fact that all things come from God. But also, He is our relational Father, our loving Father who adopts us into His family. But we are really sons second. The Son, Jesus Christ, is the Son First, we become sons as a result of Father's relationship to the Son for all of eternity. We're brought into that relationship, Romans 8, because we're adopted, right? We are adopted sons, Romans 8, 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. If children, heirs of God, right, and fellow heirs with Christ, he's the first son, the true son, the biological son, the uniquely generated son, and we enter into that relationship by adoption. He brings us into the family. He says, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, then we may also be glorified with him. So we have this joyful, intimate relationship with God, but that is on the basis of who he is as father, and he was father before we were his children. He was father before. That was still his title from all of eternity. And we have entered into the relational aspects of his fatherhood, which is sweet, that he loves us, cares for us. We're not slaves in that sense. We are slaves of God, yet always more slave sons. So God is unique. He is God the Father, the one from whom all things come, and the one who adopts us and brings us into his family so we are uniquely related to him, not as God's. See, th- there's, the, there's the difference. All the world, when you have this idea of everything is God, as we will see, and everything, you know, the cosmos is God, then that all boils down to one thing. You are God. And your being, your, your being God really is the function, it's the focus of your existence. The Bible is totally different. You don't become God, you enter into God's family. You don't become the son of God, you are entered into the family, adopted as a result of the work of the Son of God. You might not think these things are important, but all other world religions get these things wrong, and we need to understand them. We are sons by adoption on the basis of the Father's love of His eternal Son. Next, God is Creator. It says, from whom are all things. Now, the doctrine of creation is something that you're very familiar with, prayerfully, Right? We read Genesis 1. We believe Genesis 1, the literal content of that, that God spoke into existence, all things that are, that He did so over six days of creation, and that He alone is the one who creates, that there was no material, nothing that existed before Him. We call that what? Creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. But what we don't often realize is that what the Bible is saying, what Paul is saying here, what the Old and New Testaments are saying, is that For God to create out of nothing necessarily means that he needed nothing. Because if he needed it, it would have already existed, and creation has not existed from all of eternity. It comes into being. Jonah 1.9, as Jonah is speaking to the men on the ship, and they're wondering, what's going on? And and he he gets the short straw, as it were, and they go, okay, What's happening here is this great storm comes upon us. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He created all of this out of nothing. And this concept means, so creation ex nihilo is simply this, the belief that the eternal triune God brought all things that are not God into existence by his word out of no preexisting material at the beginning of time. Right? The belief that the eternal triune God brought all that is not God into existence by his word out of no pre-existing material at the beginning of time. This means that God is transcendent. He is above his creation, not somehow contained within it. Little pieces of him aren't in it, as I said at the beginning. Right? Creation doesn't, isn't the sum total of who God is. He is transcendent, which simply means he is other. He is separated from creation and from the human race. We are not little pieces of God. He's totally above us, totally different than we are. Consider this. The fact that God created out of nothing 
demonstrates his transcendence by proving that he is completely separate from that which was created. Because all matter and all creatures are created by God from nothing at a point in time, they are necessarily not a part of his essential essence or being. Otherwise, they would have always existed. Everything that is essential to God has always existed. We are simply the pure desire of his free will. We, God is free. We exist because God desired to do that, but not because he had to do that or because his want drove him to do that. He was entirely contented, entirely sustained apart from us. The creation shares nothing in common with God in the sense of deity or divine nature. The world is neither part of God nor an extension of God. Every other religion believes this, that you are somehow an extension of part of God or that God is in you or you are in God. This is not true for us, right? God is transcendent. He draws us into his family. He created us and we are in his universe, but we are not merged with him in any way. This leads to the second thought of creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. It means that God is transcendent. He's above everything because it didn't exist before him. But he also is completely able to exist, desirous to exist without anything. He is self-existence. This is called God's aseity, right? That he is entirely contained within himself. His existence is in and through himself only rather than being dependent in any way on his creation. So creation ex nihilo, out of nothing, speaks directly to this. To say that God created everything that is out of nothing that was is to speak of God's self-existence as the first cause of all things. Hear me. There was nothing in existence either before him or in co-existent relationship with him and thus his existence must be through himself. No yin, no yang. No equal and opposite force in the universe. All religions teach some form of this. There's the eternal turmoil at the beginning. Creation comes out of this battle between the gods and one god ascends over the others in making creation. This is ridiculous. It was no other gods, no other things, no other matter, nothing. Only God, the triune God, existing in perfect relationship with himself, absolutely happy, absolutely sustained, needing nothing, wanting in that sense nothing. If he'd wanted it, he would have had it. If he'd needed it, it would have existed best way to, well, there's no good way to really explain this, this is the Trinity, but if you walk into the house of Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk and you don't see something there, it's because they don't want it, right? If you don't see something in their house or something in their life, it's because they don't want it or they simply have decided that it's unnecessary because they could get it if they wanted it. It's a weak illustration, it's the best I can do, all right? If it didn't exist in the beginning, God didn't need it, and in that sense, he didn't want it. He didn't have to want it. It was no desire that drove him. Now, he created us out of his own free desire. He did want to create us, but he wasn't driven by that want to have to create. It's a little hard for us to wrap our minds around, but it's very important because every Christian song out there, just about, right, is all about how God wanted us. Now, again, as we come into time, as he creates us, there's this joyful, beautiful thing that he desired to bring us into his family, but that's all because he built that all at the beginning, not because of some intrinsic value that we have in and of ourselves. We are given value by God. He was completely happy, full of love, and full of satisfaction apart from us. Now, this is humbling. It's like, wow, I mean, I want to be needed. Well, the beauty of it is you don't need to be needed because God chose to speak you into existence and then chose to draw you to himself. All of his 
choice. And therefore, you don't have to be impressive. You don't have to be special. You don't have to be anything to draw the love of God. Anything. He chose to bring you into existence and chooses, therefore, to love you. Which means, as we see in our text, that everything about you is about him. Everything. Everything. See how how important this is? We don't get this, and so we jump into our idols, and we somehow are going to draw God to do what we want, or we're somehow going to manipulate him, and somehow the world's about us, even though it's about God. Think about it in your life. Too much of the things in your life are still built around God should do this for me. Track it down with your anger, with your bitterness, with your anxiety. God didn't do this for me. Why didn't this happen? Why did this child die? Why did these things go on? Why is the world like it is? Why did that person get elected? The world's not about you or I, and this proves it. There's only one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. Not a little piece of the universe, not the whole universe that we're a part of in that sense. Creation ex nihilo is the foundation of this truth about God. Nothing in existence before Him necessarily means that God had no need of anything He did create. For God, therefore, is the reason for our existence. We exist through Him, which means what? Again, we've got to flesh each of these things out because you know these things. You shouldn't go, Chris, we know this. You're belaboring the point. I'm not. Because this is building the nature of who God is. We're trying to draw it out from this verse. It's all contained here, all these words. And Scripture says all of these things. We are dependent upon Him, therefore, if we exist through Him and for Him. Job 12, 9. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. We are eternally, absolutely, and fundamentally dependent upon God, and we forget that. Our very life, the neurons firing in your head are at the pleasure of the God who does not need to keep it going. He does because He desires. It is His desire to keep your brain firing, to keep your lungs going in and out. You are totally, every second, every moment, depending on him. Imagine the foolishness of shaking our fist back at God. Why are you doing this? And why did you create me like this? And I mean, the, the foolishness is manifest when you begin to realize that by his very will, you simply breathe and think anything. We're dependent upon him. He does not need us. Acts 17, 24. Unless you think I'm belaboring this. So, all right, Chris doesn't really mean that. Right? All throughout Scripture, this is true. The God who made the world. So he's speaking to those in Athens with all those other deities, right? Very similar to Corinth. Very similar to the entire ancient world. The God who made the world and all things in it. So this creation ex nihilo. You're like, what are you talking about? This you know, creation out of nothing. Why does that? Paul relates it directly to this thought. The God who made the world, all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Away with all of this worship of me through these temples that I do not need. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Who will give back to him? What are you going to give to him that isn't his? This will change your finances. Oh God, I'm going to give you some money. You are not. It is all his. Now you can be using, you don't have to, I'm not talking about giving it all to the church because you have to support your family. But he gave you that money to serve him. Supporting your family, yes, enjoying some of the good things the Lord has given you to go, you know, to put some gas in the car and go drive to the mountains. Yes, but that is still His, and it's still for Him. Every resource, when you speak, that breath you expire is His. I think, well, how can God require all this of me? Because it's all His already. I got to say things just for Him. I got to, yes, because it's His breath. 
You're using his breath to speak, so use it in a way that pleases him. That's the whole point here. No idols, no, nothing. there are no other gods or beings that give anything to you in this way. Only God. Only God. He doesn't need you, and yet he chooses to give you life and breath. Therefore, our purpose for existing is to bring him glory. That's C. So A, we're dependent on him. Four was God is the reason for our existence. A, we're dependent upon him. B, he does not need us. See, our purpose for existing is to bring him glory. But even that, we've got to define it because you're like, yeah, bring God glory. It's the slogan of every church drive down the road. Bring God glory, bring God glory. It didn't used to be that, right? But what does it mean? Here's what it means. It means you fear him. Why? Because he is the one true and only God. That's why you fear him. Because you don't fear God because he's one deity amongst a pantheon of deities like Zeus. You fear him because he's the one and only God. That's why you have this delightful, dreadful, consuming, reverential awe. There's no being, no person, nothing in the universe that is to draw your fear. Nothing. Not in this sense. He is alone the one to fear, Jeremiah 10, 7, who would not fear you, O king of the nations. Not because he's powerful, because he's mean, because he's going to harm you, because he's the transcendent, say, totally self-existent God who gives you life and breath. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For among all the nations, all the wise men of all the nations and in all the kingdoms, there's none like you. You're not giving, doing God a favor when you fear him. It is his why? Because he's not like anything else in creation. I mean, you could argue all day long about other gods and say, well, why should this God be better? And why should that God be better? And why should we exalt that God? Good, you're right. None of them should. But there's no argument about fearing God because he's the only true God. There are none others. You are to love him. These are not, these are not opposites to fear God and to love him. Deuteronomy 6, 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. There's your fear of the Lord. His, he's, he's unique He's the one true God. And then right after that, what does it say? And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Because you fear him, you love him. Those two go together. You can't have one without the other. A true fear of God always leads to love. A love of God leads to greater fear because he's the one true God. So if you are going to bring him glory, you have to fear him. You have to love him. You have to obey him. It's not separate from these. Fear and love bring obedience. Deuteronomy 13, 4. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him. You shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. And then fourth, if you are going to bring glory to God, you must be satisfied in him. He must be your glory. He must be your delight. He must be your pleasure. God is not stealing anything from you when he says don't find pleasure in other gods. He's saying don't find pleasure there because you can find it fully in me. And if you try to find it in something else, you aren't living for the very thing for which you were created. Stop trying to find your pleasure, your ultimate pleasure, in other things. It's insulting to the eternal God. It is not bringing him glory. Well, God, I love you, but my satisfaction is found in everything else. Proverbs 16, 11. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 36, 8. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house. This is people who truly love him. No, and they drink their fill of the abundance of what? The world? And it's sexual pleasure and it's power pleasure and it's fame pleasure? No, they drink their fill of the abundance of your house and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. You can't tell God he's the greatest thing ever and then pursue your satisfaction and joy in other things. 
It's like telling your wife she's the supreme object of your affection and joy and then finding pleasure in the arms of another woman. She's not going to buy it. Oh, babe, you're my greatest pleasure. And here you are in someone else's bedroom. I don't think that's going to work. It's not going to work for God either. You're my greatest pleasure. And your great pleasure is actually found in things that dishonor and displease him or simply don't rise to the level of him. Because we have things we're to enjoy. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your career. Enjoy the good things he's given, but not in place of God, only through your worship and enjoyment of him, which means you have to enjoy them biblically. In the power of the Spirit of God, according to the principles of the Word of God. You were created to bring Him glory, and that is found in being consumed with Him. Romans eleven thirty three are the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, unfathomable His ways, who has known the mind of the Lord or become His counselor, who was first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again, for through Him, from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to Him be the glory forever. Amen. Well, there's point two. It gets better. That was point one. There's one God, the Father. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ, back in verse 6. For or by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. Now, it's interesting when it says by Him are all things, we exist through Him. That's the same preposition. You could just read by Him are all things, and we exist by Him. It's not, it's not a different concept. Right? It's using the same preposition. Right? That everything that the Father designs and, and, and desires is accomplished through the work of the Son. That's His work. Everything comes into being through Him. And then everything exists through Him, by Him, because He holds it all together. So what does it mean when it says there is one Lord, Jesus Christ? First, it means that Jesus is God. When it says one Lord, we're not talking a separate master or separate king. There's only one king in the universe, and that's God. So this directly ties Jesus to what? His deity. This is a statement of the Trinity and of the deity of Jesus to say that Jesus is Lord. You trace this back into the Old Testament. This word, there's only one Greek word used essentially in the New Testament for Lord, for God, right? That is Jesus as he represents or is fully God. You take it back into the Old Testament, and kurios is the word that translates the words for God in the Old Testament, Right? So to, it's, it's like saying Psalm 110.1, the Lord says to my Lord, which one is Lord? Yahweh says to Adonai. Well, when you talk about Jesus as Lord, you are elevating him immediately to the status of the one Lord of the Old Testament, which is the one Lord of the New Testament, which is the one true God, and yet two persons, God the Father and God the Son. There's one Lord, Jesus Christ, and yet they are, he is fully God as Lord. So he is God, fully equal with God in essence while remaining individual in person. We're not talking about two gods, just one who share the exact same essence and yet in the mystery of the Trinity then accomplish their work in union together as persons of the Trinity. Second, Jesus is king. To say that he is Lord is to say that Jesus is king, the one who rules over us and to whom we bend the knee, which is why he has to be Lord, because you, or why he has to be God, because if you bend the knee to Jesus and he's not God, what's happened? You've just worshipped an idol. See, it has to be that Jesus is God. Lord means that. The fact that he is the king and we bend our knee to him means that he must be God, for only God can receive worship. Philippians 2. For this reason, God highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on him the name 
which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's how it works. By exalting Christ as Lord, you actually exalt God the Father, who is co-equal with the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ that we worship. Jesus is God. To say that there's one Lord is to say that Jesus is God and Jesus is King. But there's more in this title, back in your text. There's one Lord, the God King, who is also man, Jesus Christ, the God who the Lord of the universe, who spoke creation into existence, as we will see, co-equal with the Father, right, as the Son took to himself humanity, Jesus is his human name. He's always, will always be known by this name as he takes on flesh, doesn't change in any aspect his Godness, his Godhood, but adds to himself perfect humanity. So he becomes the God man, Jesus. He took on flesh, he dwelt among us. Hebrews 2 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. It's a sweetness, God becoming man, that he might accomplish the work of the Father and bringing us into right relationship because he was able then as the God-man to make that perfect sacrifice, to be a perfect man, to die because he was a man and only men, as it were, can die, and yet to be raised again from the dead, exhibiting his power over it as God. One Lord, Jesus, fully man, but Jesus Christ, right? This full title, Lord Jesus Christ, used many times in Scripture, but here again, Paul bringing it to bear so that they will understand the nature of the Trinity, the worship of God and the worship of the Son, because it is the Son who is the the Messiah who saves. Jesus is the Savior. He is man. He is the Savior. He is the Christ. This is His official title, the Anointed One, the One who brings salvation, the One who will save His people from their sins. Matthew 16, 16, when Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the promised one who will come and save his people from their sins. You're the promised one of Genesis 3, 15, that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. You're the fulfillment of the expectation of deliverance from sin. The one who is, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Even his title as Savior implies the fact that he must be God, the Son of God. And he is the one who, by nature of that pedigree, being fully God and fully man, is able to actually bring salvation to us. He is the Savior. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords who was sent by the Father to save his people. Then it says, finally in our text, by whom are all things and we exist through or by him. This is fascinating. God is the one who's the creator, right? God the creator. And yet it is Jesus who actually is the agent of speaking all things into existence, by whom are all things. Again, he has to be co-equal with God for all things to be brought forth by him. Colossians 1.15 is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn means he is the one who has preeminence over it. Why? For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. So he's the agent by which all creation came into being. Remember, the Father who originates, the Son whose work brings into existence, and then the Spirit of God we see, not in this text. We see him here actually in a minute, I'll show you. But we see him even at the beginning of creation, finalizing that work, the Spirit of God hovering over the surface of the waters. So we have this reality that the Son brings things into existence. He's the agent of creation. He's before all things, but here finally for our text this morning, and in Him all things hold together. We exist through Him. You continue to exist because the Son wills it. Right? All things hold together, says Colossians 1.17. Literally, not because Jesus is part of creation, but because His power binds it together. And if He releases that power, all creation goes away, but Jesus remains. All the universe will disappear in a great flash of heat, as it were, God creating a new heavens and new earth, but He will go nowhere. He's not bound up in it. He sustains it, the one who keeps it all going. Hebrews 1.3, He's the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. So we have this powerful statement of the nature and uniqueness of God, of the power and the, the lordship of Jesus Christ, the full deity. So you have the Trinity, the first two persons, and you might be asking, so where's the Spirit? You're reading the Word. There's the Spirit of God. He is the one who illumines this Word to you. The very fact that you understand what this means, the very fact that Paul has, has spoken this forth is the work of the Spirit who is also God. And yet it is always the Spirit's work to do what? To point a way to whom? The Father and the Son. And you can't discount His work because we have no Bible apart from that and you have no ability to understand this Bible unless the Spirit of God is working. He is always and everywhere underneath, as it were, finalizing the works of God. It is the Spirit, remember, who then brings the person and work of Christ, unifies us with Him as He regenerates our hearts and comes to live inside of us brings that desire of the Father, the work of the Son, into full completion in the salvation of His people. That's what the Spirit does. So in everything, you have this Trinitarian work, and you have this one unique triune God who needed nothing and no one, and yet by His own free grace brought us into existence. By His own free will, He is the one who saved. You see, God is free, not us. His will is free, not ours. His grace is free, not because we deserved it. It is totally free, and as a result, we therefore can live fully and joyfully in His presence through His very power and bring glory back to Him, understanding this nature of who God is. Does your understanding of God properly inform every area of your life? Because it must. If it doesn't, you simply are still dead in trespasses and sins. If it doesn't impact you in a saving way. And if you are a Christian, you are still wrestling with idolatry in the places where this truth about God does not fully dominate everything you are. Now, don't mishear me. I don't dominate everything you are. The church doesn't dominate everything you are. God does. And He does that through these truths so that your entire life is simply an offering back up to Him. That will save you from idolatry and that alone. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would grant us grace to understand these truths. Truly, in, in so many ways that they are beyond us. And yet, Father, I thank you that by your Spirit, you enable us to understand to the point that we can fear you and worship you and honor you and glorify you. 
Lord, I pray that as a congregation, as we know these truths about your uniqueness and your transcendence and about the the deity of Christ and and his upholding of all things and the work of the Spirit to illumine and, and, and bring these truths to bear, Lord, I pray that we would be a humble and holy people reflecting to a world the one true God. In your precious name, amen.